0: some times i wonder why i spin the lonely now
1: keeping of the song of the melody welcome to subtle beast everybody i am your host bolts with me as always my brother from another mother Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, my man? all oh, folks, I feel good. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, we're coming into, like, crisp fall, you know, season. I'm kind of digging it. Um, but uh, we got a pretty interesting show coming up, and I'm really excited to do it. And I think it's going to really hit home when you find out that Well, let me just state this, everything that's been going on in the world for the last six months, people, a lot of people, probably not our followers and definitely not us, have been turning to the quote unquote, the the big media corporations or the big news outlets to find out what's been going on with this uh, pandemic. And uh, everything just seems to be a lie or a version of it, because you can watch one news station. And you're hearing one thing or one statistic And you can turn on another And you're hearing the complete opposite So right then and there that you know That it's a lie on somebody's part But who do you believe? Where do you get the truth from? But that's what we're going to be talking about tonight And it's not something anything new Right, no, it's not new at all It goes back uh, hundreds of years In fact, we really aren't going to talk about anything new No, no, not nothing, nothing recent But you're going to hear things that you were taught As a child And... It, it was never that way As a matter of fact When we were preparing For this show Came across something And I said to Steve Oh my gosh I just said that To somebody yesterday And it As a fact As, as a fact And I it Was corrected in the research So If that's not a testimony To always do your research But uh, Steve Do you want to uh, Jump I, in on this? Well I do want
0: to say Something about this show This show When we were talking about it In pre-show Fultz said I'm not going to say it Because I say it Too much <laughs> But this show has been in the works. Uh, we were looking at the, the notes from it since uh, December of 2019, almost a year. We've had this show in the books ready
1: to go, and uh, it's it feels like the right time to do it. Yeah, it does. It, uh, we're getting back. A, a lot of states and a lot of countries are getting back to, hopefully, the way things were prior to everything that's going on in the world with the with the covid and all that but uh yeah we're gonna take a little trip back in time and show you that uh quote-unquote fake news isn't something new fake news about china as oh, well yeah i mean there's there's lots of news coming out about about china all the time you don't know what to believe but oh here's here's a big one steve's gonna break it in with one from china Folt said how do you want to start this show i said let's
0: start it with china yeah the practice of chinese foot binding was not only about catching a man so i guess uh chinese foot binding is this thing where they wrap the foot of a female chinese to prohibit the growth of it and it it deforms the foot
1: and it in our day it looks terrible absolutely terrible well what yeah because it almost like the way they bind it it makes your heel be actually longer than uh your phalanges your toes and you like the the end of your foot pushes the middle section up yeah and the back pushing so it makes it impossible to work hence steve's
0: gonna explain to you why women have historically gone to extreme measures to meet cultural standards of beauty to attract the opposite sex from wearing tight corsets to walking in heels. In China, this standard of beauty was achieved by foot binding. A young girl's bones were broken and her feet tightly bound so that her lotus feet now appeared small and dainty. In their research book, Bound Feet, Young Hands, authors Laura Bossen and Hill Gates reveal some girls' feet were even bound at a very young age not to catch a husband but to force them to work. What's groundbreaking about our work is that foot binding was not confined to the elite, Laura Bossen said, the book's co-author. The study, Bossen added, dispels the view that the goal was only to try to please men. The authors interviewed over 1,800 women across China to uncover that foot binding was prevalent among many peasant families to create immobility for girls so that they would stick around doing hard, doing handwork that families depended on for selling goods. So, it originally was supposedly done by the very wealthy and elite so that they would become more value. Their children would become more valuable. Or, or that's the story. Right. In, in a, tr- what is it? It's like a trade for a, a dowry yeah, to get dowry. A, a higher dowry. Um, but then it was uncovered that even the peasants were doing it. They were binding the feet of girls so that they wouldn't run off, literally- Right Wouldn't run off And they would stay In the
1: area of the house To do all the handwork And you can see Where the misconception Could come Throughout time That it was done As a way to Please men Well in a way It was A sadistic way To please men Because they were pleased That they couldn't Move They couldn't run away They could never leave So As a controlling individual Or That Or whatever culture Or the Chinese culture At the time Yeah they were pleased Nobody else was So over time they're just like Well this is done to keep the men happy Because that's what they like You know it was probably just told to the children Oh you know you want to make everybody happy right Terrible So the falsehood there is that it was only done for the elite But in actuality it was done for their entire culture Correct Now here's one that uh, many may not know And and it's not going to be Her name is going to be no surprise to anybody Rosa Parks And this breaks down basically that she was not sitting in the white only section. Now, no one can deny that Rosa Parks, she played a pivotal role in the civil rights movement. And she was uh, by refusing to move to the back of the bus for being African-American. But no one can deny she was sitting in the white only section. Back on late December day in 1955, I'm sorry, but one can deny That she was sitting in in the white-only section. Now, back on the late December day in 1955, Montgomery, Alabama, this is according to History.com, and they confirm that Mrs. Parks was actually sitting in the first row of the middle section for African-Americans, the colored section. But when more passengers boarded, the bus became packed, and a white man was left standing. The driver then demanded Parks and three other African-American passengers to move further back so this man could take their seat. As the story goes, Rosa uh, Rosa wouldn't stand for it, and earns the spot <clears throat> as the rank of the pioneer of women in changing history. It's fantastic, right? Rosa. So I, I'm just going to do this next one because it, it pertains to uh, uh, why the basically the the civil rights movement came about. Um, now this goes back even further though. We're going to talk about the Emancipation Proclamation only freed some slaves. You know, throughout history, you're told that that was the deal that was signed to free slaveries. Now, if you thought that the historical executive order put the final kibosh on slavery, you'd be wrong, because students that our students think that it freed the slaves, but in reality, it only applied to those areas still controlled by the Confederacy, and so didn't actually free the slaves directly. Explains William D. Kerrigan, he's the chair professor of history at the Rowan University. What what it did allow. What, did, what, what it did was allow the slaves to free themselves by running away to Union lines or the North, which between 500,000 and 700,000 did. Kerrigan explains that it was the 13th Amendment that actually put a final end to the slavery. However, it wasn't until December 1865, eight months after Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, that the 13th Amendment was ratified. So there you have it. I mean, so there's two right there, Rosa Parks. I mean, she's a legend and a and a true patriot, standing up for herself. But there was a, we weren't always taught taught the whole story. Now, regardless, she stood her ground, and I love it. But uh, you know, we were always told that she wouldn't move like from the front of the bus to what to the back of the bus. Correct. Correct. So, um, Steve, you want to do this next big one? I sure do. This is a big one.
0: That we have a holiday coming up. Uh, and it's Thanksgiving. I'm just going to say it's the holiday of Thanksgiving. This <laughs> Steve coming, was trying to think of a clever way to get in. But it's its not what you think it is. It's not a uh, celebration of the founders of the country right. sitting down with the
1: Indians to come together in a peaceful way. It's giving thanks, but not in the way that you would think. And Steve's going to let us know.
0: Thankfully, this holiday has become one of the heartwarming stories. Thanksgiving sure didn't start off happy. According to Romano Peters, the Mas P. Wampanoag Tribe's Tribal Historic Preservation Officer quoted the Indian Country Today media network. President Lincoln promoted the celebration of a happy meal between the pilgrims and the Indians to create a feeling of harmony and bring together the country after the Civil War. But there was nothing harmonious about how the Thanksgiving holiday came about. The Massacre of an Entire Indian Tribe In 1636, when a murdered man was discovered in a boat in Plymouth, English Major John Mason and his soldiers blamed the Pequot Indians. They then killed 400 of them in retribution, including women and children. The governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, William Newell, proclaimed, from that day forth shall be a, ce- a celebration at and thanksgiving for subduing the Pequots, less the kind of thankfulness story we read about
1: in grammar school or share over turkey and pumpkin pie. So see, there you have it. It's, it's giving thanks for the slaughtering of over 400 men, women, and children. That's terrible. And well you know what we just sweep that right under the rug and just like it's a day of thanksgiving for everyone to- oh it's when the pilgrims came on the mayflower and they sat down and they had thanksgiving with the indians and <sighs> which we're gonna get into later it's, it's
0: really just a warm-up for christmas you get all
1: your pots and pans out yeah and then you cook the same meal again basically
0: right a month later but you've got a you got your dry your your first run over
1: I think it's just a way that everyone was like, "You know what? You've been avoiding your family for long enough. We're going to force you into a a, a double or even triple with New Year's interaction <laughs> with your family." All right. Well, uh, well, we'll we'll just move on now. Enough about families and relatives and trying to fit them in. Now, here's another one that uh may really hit home for some people because it was a huge smash hit movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, The Titanic. The Titanic didn't sink because it hit an iceberg. Now people have been long fascinated with the tragedy of the unsinkable ship that hit an iceberg in 1912, but it turns out it may not have been the iceberg that took the Titanic down in the North Atlantic, but a roaring fire. Recent analysis of photos found in an attic that were taken by the ship's electrical engineer experts have determined there was a fire burning in the ship's hull unnoticed for 3 weeks before the collision. It took 12 men to try and contain the flames, but they weren't able to do it. By the time the t- the Titanic hit the iceberg, the damage to the hull was too far gone and the ship's lining was torn open. In 2017 documentary Titanic the New Evidence, a journalist, Sion Maloney said the official Titanic inquiry branded the sinking as an act of God. This isn't a simple story of colliding with an iceberg and sinking but it's a perfect storm of extraordinary factors coming together including fire, ice and criminal negligence. It's true, folks. Yeah, because, I mean, it, I mean, they always said that it was the unsinkable ship because it was made of, like, steel, iron, and all of that. And, you know, I don't think that ice alone, even though the size – well, we don't really know the size because we didn't see it, but the way the movie portrayed it was really big. But a fire makes sense, perfect sense to me. Double fortified. Check out our show on Titanic. Oh, yeah, if, we if did a whole show on that. It too. is
0: a fascinating topic that you could talk about for hours. Totally. George Washington, there's a bunch of stuff about him. George Washington chopped down the term of his presidency, but not a cherry tree. Misinformation about Washington has made the rounds with school children and adults over the years, mostly about his teeth and chopping down his father's cherry tree. Washington certainly wasn't showing off a set of pearly whites when he smiled, but nor were his teeth made of wood. Rather, they were a combination of gold, ivory, lead... And human and animal teeth And the cherry tree chopping tale Never happened at all That story grew out of a myth Included in The Life of Washington A book by Mason Locke Memes George Washington's first biographer Then another writer William Holmes McGruffy Repeated the story In his children's reader So as the story goes Although Washington couldn't tell a lie We've been telling one about him For over 200 years most students sadly now know very little about Washington, uh, but they admire his day, says a historian William Kerrigan. They are more likely to know about the false stories of the Christmas tree and etc than about the fact that he was widely admired for resigning his commission after the Revolutionary War and stepping down after two terms of as president.
1: That was cherry tree, not Christmas tree. Just a. Did I say Christmas tree? You did. I was thinking about Christmas. Of course you are, because we were just talking about Thanksgiving. <laughs> now you're hungry. <laughs> so, is that the conclusion? Of George Washington. They're not made of wood. They're not made of. His teeth were made of wool. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Alexander Graham Bell is up next, and uh, he didn't invent the telephone. Now, on the ABC show Shark Tank, the Sharks, a.k.a. investors, are big on asking entrepreneurs if, they're, if they've obtained a patent on their product. Now, rightfully so. Without a patent, an idea or, or an invention could be claimed by someone else. But back in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell didn't need to watch Shark Tank to get his message across. He wasn't the inventor of the telephone like we were all taught. He was the first to patent it. Now, it turns out Bell was actually one of several men who were working on the telephone idea at the same time, but he got to the patent office before they did. But in 2002, U.S. Congress recognized an impoverished Florentine immigrant as the inventor of the telephone rather than Alexander Graham Bell. And the Guardian reported historians and Italian-Americans won their battle to persuade Washington to recognize a little-known mechanical genius, Antonio Mucci, as the father of modern communications, 113 years after his death, of course. Now, the resolution declared Mucci's teletrofano, demonstrated in new york in 1860 and it made him the inventor of the telephone in the place of bell even though it was bell who took it to the patent office 16 years later it is the sense of the house of representatives that the life and achievements of antonio Meucci should be recognized and his work in the invention of the telephone should be accomplished the resolution stated so it's official yeah i think it's great that they did that yeah so that was. i mean so but it's still a false history now because it would be crazy if you went on a game show and they're like who's the inventor and you'd be like well was it who who we were taught it was or who really did oh, that'd be weird yeah i mean so it's really important i mean that's why but they got to stop with these kind of stories you know what i'm saying yes you want to go on to old six digits yeah
0: and Boylan wasn't sporting six digits. If housewives of the Tudors were a thing, Anne Boylan. Yeah. Boylan would certainly have been its star. For over 400 years, rumors have been flying when it comes to Henry VIII's second wife. Not only did her husband cut ties with the Catholic Church to obtain a divorce and marry her, he eventually cut off her head for cheating on him. But like a reality show on steroids, Anne Boylan's saga didn't end there. Speculation that she was a witch simmered over the years, fueled by rumors she had six fingers on one hand. In a book written decades later by a Catholic propagandist, Nicholas Sander, he wrote that the queen had a projecting tooth under her upper lip and on her right hand had six fingers. He also noted she had an ugly cyst on her neck. Back then, moles and other imperfections like extra fingers were a sign of the devil or witchcraft. Turns out Sanders had a vendetta against Anne's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, and may have made it all up. Plus, people who actually hung out with the Queen described her as a looker, according to History.com. George Wyatt, a biographer who spoke at Anne's former attendants, noted that she did have several moles and had an extra nail on the little finger of her right hand, but no sixth digit. And when a doctor exhumed the supposed burial site of the Tower of London back in the 19th century, none of the bodies showed any sign of an additional finger.
1: Wow, so there you go. It was confirmed. False history. Yeah, more false history. Well, uh, if there's any... Disney fans out there that's all I'm gonna say on Disney but if there's any Disney fans out there or your kids are a big fan of Disney they've probably seen the movie Pocahontas. Well guess what Pocahontas and John Smith <clears throat> they were never they were never an item they were never a thing. Because Disney had it all wrong. Pocahontas and John Smith, they never had a thing. In fact, Pocahontas was only about eight years old when John Smith arrived. He was later married to another young Indian warrior who eventually died, according to the tribal oral histories, as well as the true story of Pocahontas by members of the Mattapone tribe. Supposedly, she had a baby that was given to relatives before she was forced into captivity at about 15 or 16 years old. As Buck Woodard, as cultural anthropologist and former director of the American Indian Initiative at Colonial Williamsburg, told Indian Country Today, at a very young age, Pocahontas helped establish a relationship between the Algonquin and the English. It was said there was a mutual admiration between her and Smith, who later described her as an unrivaled in wit and spirit. But that's where the love story ends. There was never any romance. It was a lie. It is, and Disney's cashing in on that lie. All right, Steve, you get another big one right here. Yes, this one's huge. Columbus took a shortcut and lucked out. Ah,
0: Columbus. Yes. He proved the world wasn't flat and discovered America to boot. Wrong. That's not exactly what happened, although we've been teaching it that way in schools for years and years. Truth is, No one in 1492 believed the earth was flat. In fact, more people in 2020 believe that the earth is flat. Check out our episode on uh, flat earth. You'll enjoy it. Many people have. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Columbus was just trying to prove you could get from Europe to China by sailing west rather than east. His shortcut plans got derailed when he hit land and discovered a whole new continent in the process. He ended up an esteemed player in the founding of America. The thing is, Columbus never landed in what would become the United States. He actually landed in the Caribbean. Basically, Columbus is the basis of a whole host of things
1: that you learned in school that aren't true anymore. Yeah, so he was down. He ended up down in the Caribbean, and he wasn't known for discovering anything. He was actually a brutal savage. See, so and the local the local tribes at that time, when he arrived there, they took him in. They gave him a place to sleep and they fed him. And then Columbus told them, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go get more of our men. We're gonna come back and we're gonna get you, and we're all gonna live in harmony." Well, they got more of his men, and they came back and just slaughtered everybody i mean he was just a a, a savage and uh I, I believe that it was at the turn of the 19th uh 19 1900s that uh i, I don't remember the circumstance but there was an uprise in new york in new york city with the italian americans and uh, government was trying to find a way to appease them. So they decided, well, w- what can we do? What can we do? Well, Columbus was from Italy. He was Italian. Well, let's just name a day after him and, we'll, and just be Columbus Day. And guess what? It worked because it ended whatever uprise there was between the government and the Italian Americans at that time. And nobody's going to complain about a day off. Right. And so wh- what else is crazy is that. He never had any interaction for, for the for him to call them Indians because he thought he was in India. You know that that was another falsehood that was taught to us because he would have known <laughs> right away. So you're Indians? No. Oh, okay. This is India, right? <laughs> no, this is a completely different place. Nah, you're Indians. For, where's, where's all the spices? For hundreds it's, of years later,
0: the silk. I'm supposed to be fighting China and
1: yeah, India. So yeah, um, Amerigo. That's who discovered America. Amerigo. Vespucci. Yes. Steve, is it my turn or your turn? I take it, man. This is a good one. All right. The Wright brothers. Uh, they weren't the first to uh, earn their wings, if you will. This brother team from Dayton, Ohio. They did come with the first truly controllable aircraft. We'll give them that. But the real claim for first-in-flight fame goes to a German emir- immigrant named Gustav Whitehead. That occurred in Bridgeport, Connecticut. In 2013, Janes of All World aircraft which calls itself the world's foremost authority on aviation aviation history named the August 1901 flight by Whitehead as the first successful powered flight in history according to flyingmagazine.com now Jane she reviewed evidence from the aviation research John Brown that Whitehead may have made one and possibly two flights in a small monoplane of his own design and powered by a tiny motor also of his own design as early as 1901 two full years before the wright brothers oh man but see i mean that was just but that took place over here i mean uh, i don't know but the, yeah but i guess the german guy did that uh, the flight in connecticut right so it's Bridgeport. like yeah it was just again something that was ignored by the media so that uh, americans sound better i guess yeah they didn't want to give it to
0: that uh german immigrant they wanted to go down to uh Was it Kitty Bunkport or whatever? Yeah, and the Wright brothers working on the plane ended up getting the credit for it all these years later.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, sticking with the topic of
0: flight, this one's good. Charles Lindbergh, I love their cheese. Charles Lindbergh was not the first to cross the Atlantic by air. Many people have a fear of flying, but Lucky Lindy certainly Mm -hmm. knew his tricks to ease one's flying nerves. After all, Charles Lindbergh did complete the 34-hour grueling flight from New York to Paris all by himself, but most people think he was also the first to fly nonstop across the Atlantic. Actually, he was around the 85th person to do so. The honor for number one goes to British pilots John Alcock and Arthur Brown who back in 19 flew nonstop from Newfoundland to Ireland in a Vickers Vimy biplane before crash landing in a bog. Still, it wasn't a small feat to cross the Atlantic by airplane between two major international cities on your own. This was San's autopilot and Red Bull. So Lindy had to stay wide awake for 34 hours to fly it. And don't forget about going to the bathroom. Maybe Lindy wasn't so lucky after all. They probably had
1: some like hatch, or like a funnel, or or they just went.
0: Yeah, I mean you're by yourself.
1: Number one, not so big deal, right? Number two, you got some issues, but I doubt you're eating very much as you're flying this monoplane. I could see him going 34 hours and just right. All right, well, this next one right here, uh, it's not flying, but it's driving. Henry Ford didn't invent the car. Now, Henry Ford made cars better. He made cars cheaper and faster. And like electric cars being built today, these were all revolutionary feats that changed the automotive marketplace. But unlike what some folks think, he didn't invent the car. Of course, again, it was a German mechanical engineer, Carl Benz, who designed and built the first practical automobile powered by an internal combustion engine. The original car, Benz's three-wheeled motor wagon, first ran in 1885, and there were others after him. Ford did not start building his car until 1886. However, it was Ford's ingenuity in building larger factories with moving production lines to mass produce cars that made affordable to the masses. Although he may not have invented the car, he certainly had a large hand in fueling America's love story with the automobile. Carl Benz. Carl Benz, I From mean Mercedes Benz. Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with a Benz. I mean a Benz is probably one of the best cars to grip the road even today. Oh, that there's the new Benz is so sick, but some of those old
0: uh, Model T Fords are truly valuable and of museum quality. They're part of our American history and heritage. Totally, but it is a falsehood. That is another false history. Uh, just a update. It was Kitty Hawk.
1: Kitty Hawk. Yes, uh, it was no. Kitty Hawk. You're close. Yeah. Hey Bonport. They both had the word kitty in Yeah, I was like, isn't Kitty Hawk in North Carolina? Can any bunk ports in Maine? I was like, ah, we'll give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one. This one I think a lot of
0: people know about. Um, this guy, Thomas Edison. So Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb. Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb at all. He developed it. There's a huge difference. Edison was in a very competitive race where he borrowed – Some said stole ideas from other inventors who were also working on an incandescent bulb. In his book, Freeberg shows that the light bulb reflected the work of many inventors rather than Edison's lone genius. What made him ultimately successful was that he was not a lone inventor, a lone genius, but rather the assembler of the first research and development team in Menlo Park, New Jersey. So that light bulb was created, and he got the credit for it.
1: There's a lot of people ripping off a lot of stuff throughout history. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Some people painted as saints and heroes who were brutal masochists. Right. It's just unbelievable. And that's taught in schools. Oh, he was a great man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so you know that famous painting where uh, Washington's crossing the Delaware? I love it. He looks so, like dominant and proud yeah I, I was just talking about this painting the other day with a with a couple of friends and uh but what's crazy to know is that um well i'll just get into it the that famous painting which hangs in uh the metropolitan museum of art uh it's called the washington or washington crossing the delaware and it's one of america's best known paintings the artist emmanuel lutes Depicted a glory-filled crossing on a tipsy rowboat In reality, it was probably a 60-foot-long rowboat Or flatboat ferry guided by a cable According to the New York Times And it crowded with dozens of troops, cannons, and horses In the painting, Washington's face is lit by a lantern And torch against a night sky But weather records show the, show the crossing happened during a Northeaster More likely the ferry had to cut through Thick layers of ice on the Delaware Without a glowing sky to guide them Nor a wide river to travel The records are more in keeping With the dead of night crossing At the section of the river Less than 300 yards wide And the flag in Lute's painting Well, that was another liberty Taken by the artist The stars and stripes Was not adopted until after the crossing So, very interesting What's interesting that That's the depiction but I, I don't know, man. It, it just... was probably so less glamorous. It's probably just like get on. Right. They probably didn't even know they're like, is, is Washington here? I'm like, oh, I just stepped in horse crap. Come on, let's get going. Washington's
0: like, I'm here, I'm here. I just came over on the ferry. I'm like, oh, we thought you went back to the British. He's like, I want everybody to just remember this as being a much better event than it actually is.
1: If anyone ever paints this, have my <laughs> knee up, just make me look like a savage, throwing a flag, but not like Columbus. <laughs> All right, here we go. We're going to move on to uh, to Hamilton. That was a big play on Broadway recently. And uh, <clears throat> now, although Lynn Manuel Miranda, who was the creator of this uh, musical, Hamilton, he tried to remain true to the character as possible. Experts have raised concern that the musical over-glorifies the man, inflating his opposition to slavery. In the show's last song, his widow, Eliza, sings that Hamilton would have done so much more against slavery had he lived longer. But would he have? Annette Gordon-Reed, a professor of history and law at Harvard and the Pul- Pulitzer Prize-winning author, The Hemingless of Monticello said in an interview that while Hamilton publicly criticized Jefferson's view on the biological inferiority of blacks, his record from the 1790s until his death in 1804 includes little to no action against slavery. She believes race and slavery are invoked directly in the show mainly to underline Hamilton's quote unquote goodness, especially in contrast to Jefferson. But Hamilton, the ardent, lifelong abolitionist, she said, is an idea of who we would like Hamilton to be. So that's a big difference about who you'd like people to be versus who they really are. Right, who you
0: really are, and then the iconic image of who people would like for you to be. And that happens so much with icons. Um, There, Eliza sings that Hamilton would have done so much more if he would only have lived longer. I've heard that same argument about the B.I.G. Right. Like, he would have written so many more great hits. Well, if, of course. If he wasn't gunned down at
1: such a young age, but what would he have? That's the thing. It's just like, oh, you assume that he would just keep on going because would his, would his style of uh, music even be relevant today? Right. Because it's more of that, I don't even know what they call it anymore, but
0: anyways. Here's a good one. Yeah. Another figure of American history that – Did something, but not exactly the way that they said that they did. Correct. Paul Revere didn't ride alone. Paul Revere did alert the colonies that the British were coming, but he wasn't the only loudmouth. There were many riders who went out in the night on April 18th to warn the colonists of the British forces. Four men and one woman made late-night rides, alerting the early Americans of what danger lays ahead. Paul Revere... Samuel Prescott, Israel Bissell, William Dawes, and Sybil Ludington. What's interesting about the particular situation is neither Revere nor any of the other writers were remembered by history for their actions on April 18, 1775, until Henry Wadworth Longfellow wrote his poem in April of 1860, just shy of 85 years later. And it wasn't until the colonial revival movement of the eighteen seventies that Longfellow's poem brought Revere to fame. So he definitely, so he's definitely one of historical
1: figures you've been picturing wrong. Right, and also within that poem, uh, I believe that's where he's quoted as saying, "The British are coming, the British are coming." But he also never said that right he just was riding through warning people and again he wasn't he wasn't the only one so but they all weren't saying the british were coming now they were probably like get your guns get get everything wake up it's time right let's roll all right so what do we have next oh here's perfect the world of the world's broadcast it didn't cause any panic Now, it's widely believed that this highly realistic radio play about aliens invading Earth caused a national panic attack. It was based on a novel by H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds. Now, this couldn't be further from the truth. It turns out that not a lot of people even tuned in. Plus, the broadcast provided disclaimers regarding the show's fiction throughout it. Now, according to Slate, far fewer people heard the broadcast and fewer still panicked than most people believe today. Well, how do we know? Well, the night the program aired, the CE Hopper Rating Service telephoned 5,000 households for its national rating survey. To what program are you listening? The service asked respondents, only 2% answered radio play, or the Orson Welles program, or something similar indicating CBS. None said a news broadcast. Now, according to a summary published in Broadcasting, in other words, 98% of those surveyed were listening to something else or nothing at all on October 30, 1938. This minuscule rating is not surprising. Well's program was scheduled against one of the most popular national programs at the time, ventriloquist Edward Burgen's Chase and Sanborn Hour, a comedy variety show. Slate also argues that there's no data to support the idea that many radio listeners heard about the broadcast and tuned in during it. And it points out that several important CBS affiliates... Uh, Wells, or what is it, preempted Wells' broadcast in favor of local commercial programming, furthering shrinking its audience. So, how did the story of the panic grow over the years? Slate blames newspapers, which allegedly seized the opportunity presented by Wells' program to discredit radio as a source of news. The newspaper industry sensationalized the the panic to prove to advertisers and regulators that the radio management was irresponsible and not to be trusted wow yep media and money always coming down to that you're not going to be the one giving the news we're the one giving the news and the the newspapers were
0: probably saying oh you know that uh radio is radio people were saying you know we're going to take the newspapers out Everybody's right. saying there isn't going to be any newspapers. Everybody's going to get their news from the radio, just like internet is doing now with uh, network
1: television. And just like radio did when they started coming out with a, uh, with video. And then they, when MTV first launched, I think the first song was video killed the radio star. Yep.
0: And, uh, then the newspaper hit back and said, Oh, they're so irresponsible. They sensationalized the story and panic. I, I mean, when I thought of it, I thought HG Wells, the story, um, war of the worlds being spoken over the radio really caused a panic
1: i thought so too and i thought that, that was another reason for the suppression of you know et technology and all that right due to like oh well we saw how the public would react now it seems like that's just a lie and or an excuse propagated by you know within our own government I'm sure. Now Steve's going to get into this next one which is good. I always find this one comes up when people are talking about uh different uh, like they say, "Well, you know what? Don't ever give up because Michael Jordan didn't make varsity basketball. He was cut from the team." Or "Don't give up in school because I doubt that Jordan was ever cut from the team." Well, I think I think he was. I th- I think that's what's conf- I don't know if he was cut but he didn't make like varsity or something like that or
0: Oh, they also said that Einstein was a terrible math student, but Einstein really never flunked out of algebra. Unless you have dyscalculia, a type of math learning disability, telling mom and dad that you're flunking math because you're a genius like Albert Einstein is sure to backfire for many reasons. No eye-rolling, please. But seriously, did the man who came up with an alternate proof for the Pythagorean theory as a teenager really fail math? No. In fact, when Einstein heard the myth, he just laughed it off and said that he had already mastered differential and integral calculus by 15. According to the New York Times, his academic records contained a collection of the great theorist's papers confirmed that he was a child prodigy, remarkably gifted in mathematics, algebra, and physics, a brilliant violin player who got high marks in Latin and Greek. But his inability to master French was the bane of his school days and may have been chiefly responsible for him failing college entrance examinations. So if you can't parlez-vous Francais, you might be able to use the Einstein excuse, but not if you fail to solve for X.
1: Wow. Wow. We're just going to keep going right here. Princess Anastasia. She didn't make it out alive. For many years, it was believed that Princess Anastasia, the daughter of the last Russian czar, Nicholas II, may have survived the brutal 1918 assassination of her family. However, in 2007, genetic testing determined that she did not escape the massacre. On the night of July 16, 1918, she and her family were executed in Yekaterinburg, Russia. Yes. In 1991, a forensic study identified the bodies of her family members and servants, but not hers of her brother, Alexia. The 2007 DNA test of the second grave identified both of their bodies in response to numerous movies made about Anastasia surviving and wi- uh, and women claiming to be Anastasia. It's easy to see how the legacy of her surviving stuck around for so long and became one of the greatest lies that was made up in history. More lies. It's all lies. More falsehoods. Always. This one
0: could be controversial. You love it. President Lincoln wasn't all that when it came to opposing slavery. A PBS film called The Abolitionists tells the story of five abolitionist leaders who arguably did more than Lincoln to end slavery. There's this perception that good old Lincoln and a few others gave freedom to black people. The real story is that black people and people like Frederick Douglass wrestled their freedom away. Erica Armstrong Dunbar a historian who is featured in the film told CNN, Eric Foner, a historian with an author of that fiery trial, Abraham Lincoln and American slavery also told that to CNN. He said it was not Lincoln who originated the 13th amendment. It was the abolitionist movement. According to Foner, it wasn't until 1864 that Lincoln changed his mind and favored the amendment finally passed in the Senate. On April eighth, eighteen sixty four, the bill didn't clear the House until January thirty first of eighteen sixty five, when enough Is sneeze on? Oh, jeez! When enough Democrats added their votes, almost a year later, on December eighteenth, eighteen sixty five, the required three quarters of states had ratified the amendment. Ensuring that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within these United States. In the end, Lincoln was just trying to hold the Union together.
1: Eh, he was doing what he could. Or was he? <laughs> I know, that's the thing. <laughs> now, this is the last one uh, for this particular group of uh, falsehoods. The Dred Scott decision outraged the North, but it was not for freeing Scott. Dred Scott was a slave whose owner, an army doctor, had spent time in Illinois, a free state and Wisconsin a free territory at the time of Scott's residence. In 1846, Scott sued for his freedom on the grounds that he had lived in a free state and free territory for a prolonged period of time. It took 11 years for this case to reach the Supreme Court. The court held that Scott was not freed based on his residence in either Illinois or Wisconsin because he was not considered a person under the U.S. Constitution. In the opinion of the justices, black people were not considered citizens when the Constitution was drafted in 1787. Now, according to a majority opinion, Dred Scott was the property of his owner, and property could not be taken from a person without due process of the law. Most folks think that the North was outraged because the decision did not free Dred Scott from slavery, says William D. Kerrigan, chair and professor of history at Rowan University, but only abolitionists cared about the, act, the outcome. Many more norther- Northerners were outraged at the decision because it said that Congress could not restrict slavery in territories at all and has been done for many years, starting in 1820 with Missouri Compromise. All of these common lies about history are definitely the reasons behind <coughs> behind all these questions and these. I got a good one here. Yeah? Wall
0: Streeters didn't jump to their deaths following the market crash of 1929. Let's get it. Between Black Thursday and the end of 1929, only four suicides were plunges linked to the events that sparked the Great Depression, and only two of those occurred on Wall Street. The president of County Trust Company and the head of Rochester Gas and Electric did both kill themselves, but they used guns. The rumors reportedly started when comedians began cracking jokes about the sad state of the economy. For example, Will Will Rogers quipped that you had to stand in line to get a window to jump out of, according to Slate. Both the New York Times and New York Chiefs medical examiner tried to set the record straight, but to no avail. Wow. So you think back to that, and you're thinking that people are just jumping like crazy on Wall
1: Street. Right. Every day, but that's not the case. There was only two of those. Wow, wow, wow. In all of history. Yeah, I'm trying to go through and see which one I want to do next. Um I'm trying to find where you were just at. Well, I have one here. The USA was founded on the 4th of July, 1776. The choice of the 4th of July, 1776 as the official date for the founding of America is completely random. Even a cursory glance at the evidence suggests any one of the number of dates could have been chosen. Firstly, 4th July, 1776 was not the start of the War of Independence. A fighting between the colonial rebels and British forces had already been underway for about a year. Secondly, the idea that the colonies could be independent predated 1776 by decades, and the Declaration of Independence wasn't even the first declaration to be passed that month. That was the Lee Resolution for Independence, unanimously passed by the committee on July 2nd, 1776. I know, Steve, you're looking around like, I'm just kind of jumping around in the different...
0: No, I got it. I'm just, I was upset because my birthday is on the 4th of July and I hold Independence Day very near and dear to my heart. So to find out that
1: it was actually July 2nd, it's just a little disconcerting. Steve was probably around 10 or 12 years old to he realized the fireworks weren't for his birthday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Every year, my
1: mom told me they were for me. Yeah, well, another lie.
0: <laughs> another lie propagated by the, the powers that be. How about the Gettysburg Address? Do it. The Gettysburg Address was not an instant classic. The Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia was just under a 100 miles from the U.S. capital of Washington, D.C., and both cities would see numerous bloody battles during the American Civil War. Tens of thousands on both sides were killed or wounded at the Battle of Gettysburg, 1 through 3 July 1863. But the battle stopped Confederate attempts to invade the North. It was seen as the beginning of the end of both the war and the Confederate war machine. But it had been achieved at a terrible price on 19 november 1863 a crowd gathered to, de- to dedicate the soldiers national cemetery in gettysburg pennsylvania everyone had come to see edward everett one of the great public speakers of the age given appropriately dramatic speech they were disappointed it was a two-hour tour de the force When President Lincoln got up to make a few appropriate remarks, he spoke for only a few minutes, and the significance of what he said was largely lost in the crowd in front of him. However, once his words had been printed and distributed, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was destined to become one of the greatest speeches in history. Here it is in all of its simple glory.
1: I don't think I need to read the entire Gettysburg Address. No, I don't think so either. I think that people can do that on their own free time. Everett's speech
0: is now forgotten, but when Lincoln did, in around 250 words, explained the stakes of what a civil war was, and how it honored the war dead and stiffened the resolve of the people who were living through what was arguably the bloodiest period in American history. Wow so it wasn't an instant classic it's not like everyone was cheering or really you know profoundly walking away thinking man that Lincoln really did it
1: right it's the Gettysburg address come on everyone knows it everyone knows the beginning of it anyway four score and all that all right now I had to do this one because Steve said that I had to we were talking about I was like all right I'll do it so why is Christmas on the 25th is that Jesus's birthday yeah, that's what Christmas well. December twenty fifth is not the date mentioned in the Bible as the day of Jesus's birth. The Bible is actually silent on the day or the time of year when Mary said to have given birth to him in Bethlehem. The earliest Christians did not celebrate his birth. Twenty five became known as Jesus's birthday, and it was more of like a uh, like a like pagan symbol. It didn't really have anything to do with. Uh, with his birth actually because scientists were looking at the uh, the star the constellations of that time because well in the story goes that three wise men were following the north star well i guess the north star in that position that would have made it more of summertime like june rather than december um there are a lot of different pagan theories on why december 25th and things of that nature but we won't get into that right now uh, i believe we did cover that on a past podcast but So, Jesus, according to quote-unquote experts, was born in the summertime. That's
0: that's perfectly said, yeah. Yeah. So, witches were burnt in the Salem Witch Trials. That's a huge one coming up here on Halloween. Definitely. Everybody thinks that that is a, a reality or the truth. The Salem Witch Trials, which took place in Massachusetts between 1692 and 1693 saw more than 200 people accused of practicing witchcraft, and 20 executed. Imagine just being able to say, she's a witch!
1: Yeah, I mean, people still still say it today, like, geez, don't burn me at the stake. Yeah, exactly. You know? More than 300 years later, Salem remains one of
0: the most fascinating and best-known witch trials in history. Yet, in reality, the witch trials in Salem were neither uniquely American nor involved great numbers. For real paranoia about witches, we need to look at Europe in the 1600s when thousands of people were accused of black magic, witchcraft, and cavorting with Satan. And hundreds were executed. The numbers involved in the Salem trials were tiny compared to those in Europe. Furthermore, the guilty weren't burnt at the stake. In fact, nobody was burnt at the stake. This was a form of religious execution reserved for heretics the official death count for the salem witch trials is 20 Uh, 19 were hanged and one person was tortured to death four other people died in prison from abuse and poor conditions while awaiting their trial also contrary to popular belief those accused of witchcraft were not exclusively female More than 200 people were accused, and while the vast majority were women, some men were executed too. So, the only safe conclusion to this whole sorry episode is that virtually everything is generally accepted about Salem Witch Trials is factually wrong.
1: And Steve's not referring to our episode, he's referring to the episode of the, uh, the, the Salem Witch Trials
0: right so yeah the uh, salem witch trials where you think everybody's getting burnt
1: at the stake they were hung right i think this next one i'm gonna do is a is a great way to, to end to end it neil armstrong didn't say one small step for man one giant leap for mankind when he landed on the moon the truth is if you examine the famous line the uttered by neil armstrong in 1969 you realize it doesn't really make any sense because man and mankind essentially they mean the same thing if his famous line was accurate what he basically said was that's one that's one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind upon returning home armstrong clarified that he did say one small step for man which makes much more sense but he was misquoted since 1969 like he corrected for, for it for a man yeah, yeah there's an a in there but it got like the, the, the transmission cut out right which again you can go visit our store and like the moon and stuff it's like how did they have well, i'm not getting into it one but that's small that's why that's where for a man right so we got we got our aliens in there there you go and we got the moon landing quote unquote <laughs> in there so uh and the falsehoods is
0: just so interesting to think that we all get taught these stories. They almost become
1: like limericks or like songs. Well, and, sure, I can remember even in school, like grade school, making like uh, like an art class with the with the finger paste, a cherry tree representing like George Washington and stuff like that. Never happened. Right. A lot of this stuff
0: it it becomes fictionalized, and then the lie gets told so many
1: times that it becomes our history right and it happens a lot of time with like really bad people too like a really person that didn't really lead a good life they die and then people all of a sudden are like oh he was was a great no he wasn't he was a jerk he just happened to die right (laughs) you know so that's how small little things can get out of control like columbus or thanksgiving columbus day I, i celebrate columbus
0: day he never set foot in north america
1: no all he was was a murderer Thanksgiving, bring your family together and celebrate. Who can we say uh, (laughs) discovered America? How about Christopher Columbus? Didn't he savagely kill everyone in the Caribbean? Yeah, does anybody know that? Good point. Christopher Columbus discovered America. (laughs) Christopher,
0: that's a good American name. How (laughs) about Amerigo Vespucci? No <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: who the Italians Were going for Oh yeah Maybe that's what They were mad about Right Like hey What about I'm our Vespucci Like uh, Christopher Columbus all right so that's much better all right, all right. we'll give you that one yeah well I hope you guys had fun with this episode I, I know I did Steve I know enjoyed himself as always <laughs> I did man I really love it so uh but yeah so that's all we got on false history so start filling some people in on some of these things that we shared tonight let them know what's what and to stop passing false stories and propaganda that's going back as early as christopher columbus and post up any false history that you know about on our socials that maybe we didn't go over today and and we'll get a get a little bit more to this story absolutely because there can always be a false history part two because there are tons but for time's sake we're going to end it here and we will see you next time so take care of one another bye-bye